We continue our worship series, Reimagine, and it came to, to be really quickly. We, just so you know, we really were not planning uh, to be in this space until August. That was kind of the trajectory we were on. And then our friends at the CDC changed things rather quickly without, us, without calling the church staff. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if they have my number. Um, so we scrambled really quickly to kind of put together a series that we think is um, really important for us as a church. That being like reimagining our work together, mainly how do we like share space together? Like do we fist bump each other? Do we do handshakes? Do we do the awkward side hug thing? How do we like work out the kinks of being in the same space? But also how do we as a church think about where we're headed? And that's... That's hard, right? That, that requires a bit of faith. And then the first week we said it required a bit of remembering, right? That this work of remembering is what we do together, collectively as a community. We create shared memories. And then the week after that, we talked about what it means to engage, to re-engage, to be willing to show up. You all get gold stars. You're here. You did it right? How do we engage with one another and engage in the work of the church? Today, uh, I guess, is the title track of this series where we think about reimagining what that work is and how we go about being the church right now in June of 2021. What is our, what's our shared task as a church so we're asking that kind of question. And how do we create space to even do that? Where do we go from here? What is our work together? And really then where is God leading us? That's, that's kind of the big one. To help us do um, this collective worship series, to ground us in a shared reality, we're in the book of Philippians for four weeks. And today we're in the third chapter. I'll be reading verses 4 through 14. 4B, actually, so it is a bit confusing. It's uh, the middle of a verse, um, but it's, it's intentional. So here are these words Paul's writing to the church in Philippi. And he's talking about the tension that exists between his old self and his new self. Even though I, too, have reason for confidence in the flesh... If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews as to law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings, and by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead." 
Not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer the one who is constantly reaching out to grab a hold of us. May we have the confidence necessary to jump and trust that you will catch us. Amen. So last week, um, you know, if you were here or you watched online, um, I... I talked about my junior year of college being a really strange and difficult year. I left for the fall semester and then I came back and came back to school, but it was, I was in England and it was, um, I was studying abroad and it was a really powerful and healing time for me to study abroad, to kind of be in a new place. And um, I studied at Oxford and here's the deal. Oxford was really not my cup of tea, no pun intended there. Uh, the British do love their tea. Uh, I was very out of place at Oxford University, all right? I think the minute I walked on campus, I was... Um, the dumbest person in Oxford, right? <laughs> it's pretty clear. <laughs> I also was an American, and, and, and so it was, uh, it was a great time, but I, I really had my work cut out for me. Um, but one of the things I did to kind of get out of the, the Oxford bubble, I left and I would take a, a bus once a week or so to, to London. It's called the Oxford Tube. And I'd go to London and I'd just kind of walk around the city. Sometimes I would do that with friends. So, but, but most of the time I would do that um, by myself. And I, you know, thinking back on it, I was like 21 years old and I was just roaming around London. And, and one of the greatest things I had uh, was an iPod and I listened to music while I did this. I just listened to music all the time. And so I, I would put on my, my headphones and I would just walk around the city. And, and one night I was just riding the London Underground, listening to music, and I have this vivid memory, right? And I was uh, walking quickly to get on a subway car at the Imperial Wharf, which is... Um, the Chelsea Wharf uh, kind of area. It's in the Fulham neighborhood. And I was, uh, was kind of late to get onto that subway car. And so I was kind of sprinting. And um, I, I vividly remember I was listening, uh, I was listening to Death Cab for Cutie because I was an antsy 21-year-old. It's like two levels up from like dashboard confessional, right? So I was listening to Death Cab and I was listening to Transatlanticism. I was really, was really foreign out. I was being in my Enneagram 4 self. And I, um, I remember uh, stepping across that threshold in the words that are very famous for the London Underground, right? Mind the gap, right? You see it spray painted or, or written or painted wherever. You, you mind the gap. And I have this vivid memory of, of stepping over that while this song's playing. And, uh, and that's the end of, uh, you know, I kind of like lunged, I kind of leaped over it, and uh, that's the end of the memory. It's not that spectacular, right? And it's weird how we remember very specific things like 
you know, our grandma's couch eating a piece of pie or like uh, that one thing your friend said to you in that one place, right? Our, our brain's kind of like attached to certain things that really have no significant meaning, but we just remember them. Um, so that memory was kind of with me for a while and then I only have so much space in my brain, so it found its way out, I guess. But about 10 years later, right when I started at White Rock, I started having, having these vivid dreams of that memory. But here's the thing, like the gap was much larger <laughs> in my brain than it was in real life. It was really, really wide, and right, so I'm starting White Rock, I'm, I'm getting married, um, and so I have this dream like five, about five or six times before I get married, and then a couple times after I get married, I'm trying to figure out who you all are, y'all are definitely trying to figure out who I am, uh, and I keep having this dream at night, and, and the gap is really large, and, and in my dream, I'm running and I'm, I'm leaping with everything I have to make it across this gap, and before I land in the subway car, I wake up, right? I think that's pretty natural. Now, the funny thing about that is you're looking at me and you're like, Mitchell can't jump, which you're right. Even when I was 40 pounds lighter, I couldn't jump. And uh, in, in fact, when I was in basketball, I was getting chewed out by an assistant coach who said, well, essentially said, Mitchell, get a rebound. But he also said some other things. Uh, and, and my head coach, Coach Baker, turned to that assistant coach and said, hey, leave, leave Boone alone. Everyone knows that he can't jump over a stack of nickels, which is true. <laughs> I can't, right? But in my head, I was really leaping really, really far to get on to that subway car. And I want us to kind of, I want us to think about that feeling, that feeling of leaping, of leaving the ground that centers us or grounds us or gives us the stability that I think we all crave. And, and think about jumping towards something in that split second feeling of being like suspended between the two realities, right? I want you to think about what it feels like to leap, you know, that one jump that stretches the limits of what you feel like you're capable of. And so I think about this text in relationship to that, right? This feeling of, of leaving the security of firm and stable ground, and I want you to really connect with me there, right? This act of jumping. Because when we do so, most of the time, it's intentional. And I want you to think about what it feels like to be confident or desperate enough to jump, right? But uncertain of the outcome. That feeling, I think, gets us into the thick of this third chapter that Paul's, in Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians. Paul is writing about a passion, uh, a risky decision, an uncertain reality when he describes with rather flowery language, poetic language, the leaving of one world in hope for another. Paul is pinning these words to this church in Philippi, uh, spiritually suspended in the air, right? He has leapt. He is spiritually suspended in the air, kind of like a scene out of uh, the movie Inception, right? 
where it doesn't really make sense yet to him where he is landing. He is describing a decision that he has made or a decision that has been made for him, depending on how you interpret Paul's uh, recounting of, uh, of his conversion. But he is describing a decision that uh, being a follower of Christ is one that requires that type of jump. And when we jump, it stirs within us this emotional state of suspense and fear and even adventure. And this is what Paul is hoping that the church will understand in his writing. And what's difficult about... Um, about our translations is often they kind of strip the more poetic, flowery language from the text because we don't read Greek. I don't read Greek, right? <laughs> Some of us may read Greek. But the truth is that when we read the text translated, often it is stripped of the original intent or at least the, the feeling that, that is trying to be uh, given to the reader. And so in verse 12, it's really important that, that the original Greek uh, pulls out more flowery language than, than what we've just read this morning. The, the words being used are to flee or to pursue or to capture, talking about this relationship that Paul has with God. These same words are used in Greek erotic poetry, and they are used to describe hunting something, like stalking something and pursuing something with such intent that it's your only focus. And in the original Greek, the pursuit of Christ is the first act. Paul is talking about pursuing Christ, getting ready to leave the platform. And the second act is actually Christ capturing Paul in Christ's arms. Paul is speaking about the pursuit of the gospel that always leads us to the place where our roles are reversed and Christ grabs a hold of us. The hunter becomes the hunted, the lover becomes the beloved. And it's in this intermission between these two acts that Paul is describing this leap, this being suspended in midair, leaving the stability of where we have been with our eyes on something completely different. It's that moment. Paul knows he has left the platform and he is over the gap. He is no longer stabilized by his past life and in a perfect Pauline fashion offers us a humble bragging montage of what that means for him, right? Paul refers to himself as blameless in his previous life, right? Perfect attendance, perfect ritual purity, circumcised, well-read, faithful to the point of being a zealot. Paul talks about his past as perceived righteousness that becomes rubbish, rubbish being something that can be set aside or discarded. And in the discarding of his past, Paul becomes light enough He's let go of everything. He's become light enough that he actually can make the leap. Fully committed to forgetting what lies behind. And as Paul says at the end of our pericope, straining forward. Paul exists in this state of liminality. He is between two wor worlds, having a foothold in neither. Just memories of his past in anticipation of the future. 
And it is in this space that we as a church, as a community, as a world, we find ourselves currently, I think, suspended between two realities, a pre-COVID world and a post-COVID world. And if we're calm enough, if we're spiritually centered enough, if we attune ourselves to the Holy Spirit, if we can learn to trust God like the gospel uh, really asks us to, if we can get to that point, we can, as a church and as individuals, reimagine our work. Not because our past is too burdensome and not because our future is too bland, but because something happens when we suspend ourselves over that gap. When we put ourselves over that gap, we have the possibility of indeed being changed. And it really doesn't matter how you get over the gap. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Sometimes we're desperate enough uh, and we feel the walls coming in that we choose to jump. Sometimes it's planned and calculated and yet it still remains uncertain. Sometimes we're pushed over the gap. It's not our choice. We find ourselves there. Maybe it's our choices. Maybe others have gotten behind us and pushed us. And other times we overcalculate and, uh, and we miss and we need the outstretched arms of others to catch, let, to catch us. But regardless of why we are over the gap, the question is, what do we do with that experience? It's a very individualized kind of question. I want you to think about it personally. What are you going to do with this experience over the past year and a half? Not that you have to do anything grand with it, but we do need to spend some time reflecting as we're kind of suspended in this space of what it means to both grieve and have a sense of relief. But as a church, it's clear we're no longer on the platform. A pandemic, obviously, in the mass of uncertainty, it presses down on us, reminds us of this fact. But wait, there's more. <laughs> because we're the church, right? There's denominational uncertainty around full inclusion. There's reckoning with our privilege and our past. And there's doing or being a church in a culture that pretty much seems done with church. Like any one of these is a gap worth minding, right? But stacked on top of one another, dang. That really is like some stuntman stuff, right? Trying to figure out how to navigate that. So as we find ourselves defying the, the gravitational pull of our reality, the question is, what do we as a church need to forget in our past? What's rubbish? What's necessary to discard? And I'll just be really honest. For me personally and professionally, this is the one thing that I've been meditating on this week as I've been preparing this sermon. What is that thing I need to leave behind so that we as a church can move forward? It is this understanding that we have gotten to a place where we spend a lot of time patting ourselves on the back. 
We've been patting ourselves on the back. I've been feeling a lot of pride uh, because of our faithful response to the past several years and our well-deserved preservation. I can spend too much of my time in a state of self-congratulations, thinking we've done it. White Rock United Methodist Church has survived. Not only did we survive an incredible budget deficit, but now we've survived a pandemic. We've thrived even as a church. And yet, I'm becoming aware that as I get too focused on what we've accomplished, Paul's words haunt me because the past is not our justification. The past does not give us that expected righteousness that we desperately need or want. In fact, Paul's clear that the past can pull us down into the gap. So as we reimagine our work together, we must now focus on what's ahead of us. We must now focus on where we're going and who we are going to become as a church. We must begin, once again, straining after that which is not fully known. Who is our church for now? What is our work about now? Who needs a place at the table now, right now? Now, make no mistake, that is ultimately God's work. But there is one thing we can do, and that is to press on, hoping and praying that our work is aligned with God's desire and God's will. And that process of alignment or holy imagination requires a bit of confidence and a bit of risk-taking. Make no mistake, church, we will continue to take risk as a church over the next few years. But as we continue to read Paul's love letter to the church in Philippi, we must remember this one important thing. It is the most important thing. We have left the platform. We are no longer standing on firm ground. Our church is suspended over the gap. And the best news of all is that we are leaping We are jumping, we are moving towards a Christ whose arms are stretched out wide open. I will take that leap with you every single day. That as we move forward as a congregation, we are jumping towards a Christ whose arms are so stretched out that there is no boundary to the welcoming presence, love, and grace of God. That's where we're headed. We are suspended over the air. But I trust in what the gospel says, that we will find we will find our own salvation, our own wholeness, our own restoration, our own flourishing when we land in the arms of Christ. Just don't look down. (laughs) In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.